Hello and welcome to On the Dresser, your bi-weekly dose of sex, gender, culture, and politics. I'm Lauren Kylie, And I'm Dr. Vanessa Carlisle. <laughs> Our discussions come from the perspectives of queer sex workers and sex educators. We call our special brand of knowledge Edutitillation. <laughs> and today, or tonight, depending on when you're listening, we will be talking to Ella Darling. Ella is a pioneer in VR porn and VR camming. She runs a whole VR cam girl site. Um, you'll hear all about it. What? So, a what? Oh, a, virtual reality? Virtual reality <laughs> webcamming. It's, I'm just saying, not all of us not all of us know your acronyms, you special tech person. <laughs> uh, sorry about that. I, I also, of course... Uh, was in the interview and heard her talk all about it and got the full story on it. Um, Ella is also an award-winning porn star and the current president of the Adult Performer Advocacy Committee, where she is a political activist on behalf of the porn industry and sex workers in local and state-level politics. So excited for this. The idea of virtual reality porn, I feel like it's been, I just feel like it's been sort of in the sci-fi imagination probably for a century. She's (laughs) also a librarian. Yeah. She's also a librarian and there is a hefty section where we're talking about how cool libraries are. Um, wow! Wow! It, on on the dresser, people, you're you're in for in for another treat. Another yeah. treat. Here we are. But before we get to that, uh, let's uh, let's give you some headlines. Give it to me. All right. Well, first we're going to start on uh, a heavy note with some epto- ep- with some updates on the Jamel Moore story. On our last episode, uh, to give a brief recap of an absolutely horrifying story that just seems to keep getting worse. The body of a young black gay sex worker was found dead in the home of a wealthy, prominent Democratic donor in West Hollywood in right in my neighborhood, which still continues to be just a extra personal level of gross, just the proximity. But he was found dead of a methamphetamine overdose and it came it came out through his mother and friends that this man has a reputation for specifically targeting poor young gay black men for to offer them money to shoot them up with a variety of drugs but methamphetamine in particular and take pictures of them and tape them getting higher and higher in his apartments mm-hmm. I wonder, I wonder if someday we're going to have a name for this, like this, I mean, I think it qualifies as assault anyway, mm. um, but it feels like a very specific form of assault that, uh, yeah. that I know 
I mean, it's happened to me. I've been drugged. And I know that there's other people who've been drugged either against their will or maybe they said yes to one thing, but something else actually happened. You know, so I understand that this is one of those situations where like this guy would sort of have a certain level of transparency with with his with the sex workers who would agree to maybe get high with him. But then he wasn't honest with them about how much he was giving them or what he was giving them. And very clearly in this instance, like no matter what he thought, whatever he thought he was doing, like he overdosed somebody. Yeah. Yeah. And there have been multiple, multiple accounts. Um, There's an amazing reporter and political commenter, Jasmine Kanek, who has been sort of the center of releasing um, the, a lot of this information um, and she's doing an amazing job in that she's uncovered multiple narratives of other young gay black men some identifying as sex workers some just in an economically vulnerable place and it was kind of transactional yeah yeah so and some straight up survival sex work like that it's it's a variable but the common denominators are young gay black and and economically vulnerable in some way right like that's so what so what's the what's the development now what's new well in light of well mostly well in light of first jamel moore's mother and then the work of Jasmine and other media breaking this story, there is a police investigation and with the public stories of, I think it's up to, it's, I think it's up to four, four men have come forward with pictures, very specific detailed accounts, pictures in his, in Ed Buck's apartment. And as of two days ago, the, the, the investigation has finally offered some of the other victims immunity and good. Are, yes, it's, it's one of the things that the West Hollywood community and black lives matter, the Stonewall Democrat club have been calling for like since day one. Since yeah. This yeah started, absolutely. And they finally granted them immunity in order to tell their stories and in case anyone thinks that we're overreacting about demanding immunity, there's been at least three stories this year of a sex worker being deported because she reported an assault, sex workers being arrested because they've reported a crime that had nothing to do with any transaction at the time. Like, this is actually a pattern that the police mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. And especially since at least one of the young men already has reported that he went to the sheriff's station and said, Ed Buck drugged me at like Ed Buck assaulted me by drugging me against my will and was just sent walking out of the police station. Yeah, I mean, it's just we have to keep telling these stories in part because almost every time I'm doing like a sex work 101 stigma conversation first time I talk to somebody or come out to the clo- of the closet with somebody, one of the first things that I discover uh, when I'm talking to people who are outside of the sex work world or even just out of, out of the sexuality field, like even, even, you know, just people who are not necessarily um, connected to sex and gender as, you know, as cultural constructs that we're trying to work with. <laughs> yeah. One of the first things I encounter is 
this total ignorance about how negative our relationships are with the police. It truly feels like we've had an abusive, we've had an abusive relationship with an institution for, you know, uh, a couple hundred years. And, and to have that level of ignorance, it, it just feels like it's, it's been an incredible <laughs> PR win on the, on the, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it's like, it's, it just feels like the cops have had this incredible PR win where they they have somehow been able to completely suppress um, the stories of their own abuses towards sex workers. And now we're finally starting to see these stories like, you know, the mm-hmm. immunity coming finally. That's good. But it came kind of late and it came after somebody already got bullied and shamed by the police. Right. And like Celeste, Celeste Guap story coming mm-hmm. out finally, like, you know, we're finally starting to see a little bit more of this in the press, I think. And a big part of the reason that, and it's interesting because this seems to go both ways for Ed Buck, a big part of the reason that this was delayed is also a big part of the reason this is getting any press, which is just how much money, like hundreds of thousands of dollars that he's donated to local Democratic, like the Democratic Party causes Mm -hmm. candidates over Mm -hmm. the past few years. Yeah. Like you can't tell me that having that much money, that much political influence and being white is not a major part of this. Oh no. I mean, he's going to get protected and we're going to watch, we're going to watch it happen where admitting, uh, you know, a kind of tarnished reputation is going to be probably about as far as it will go. Like I, I think that I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm cynical at this point and it's hard. It's hard for me to see justice actually occurring for Jamal Moore here. It really is. And I, I hope that there's some, uh, some sense of community support that sort of offsets the fact that publicly and, and through the judicial system, there probably won't be the kind of justice that people want. So, you know, we need, we need community support Mm -hmm. in order to, uh, balance that out and right that wrong because it's already obvious that Ed Buck is, you know, he's got the he's got the same lawyer that defended the Grim Sleeper. Yeah, like, he's ready. Yeah. He's ready to to enter this fight, and he he can afford to take care of his own ass. So it's going to be really interesting to see how this develops. And I just I feel like having um, having more community support for Jamel Moore's family and for people who are close to him is is going to be key. Yeah, there, um, in between the past two episodes, there was a vigil in West Hollywood for Jamel Moore, and it was, <sighs> it was outside of the West Hollywood Sheriff's Station, which is right across the street from a strip of gay bars and gay clubs, so what we got in juxtaposition was this solemn, angry vigil that had Jamel Moore's family and friends and Black Lives Matter and and other community groups coming together. And then you had the gay bars dance music soundtrack playing in the background. And then you had and then you had LA traffic like right on the corner. It was, it, yeah, no, that was, that, that was a lot to deal with. Anyway. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad for the immunity. That's, that does, that does yes. feel like at least, at least some, at least something's happening. 
Yes, and we will continue to follow up on the story and we will continue to post links for the petition for California Democrats to return money from Ed Buck, as well as links to support Jamel Moore's family. And, um, all right. <laughs> so, so, Vanessa, do we have some, some other good news coming out of Los Angeles? We do have some good news. So this is a utterly shameless, in fact, enthusiastic plug for something I'm doing. Yay. Um, <laughs> I am going to be co-teaching a workshop on September 23rd in LA. Uh, it's called Pleasure as Resistance. Ooh, sexy. Sexu yeah, it is sexy. It's about sexual self-care and social justice. So it's really a workshop um, designed for people who are engaged in social justice struggles, who, whether they're, you know, street politic activists or uh, nonprofit employees or anyone who feels that they're part of movement work and part of trying to make change in this world to consider the fact that when we talk about self-care and when we talk about staying healthy for this struggle, that we don't always include our sexuality or our sexual health as part of that. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm co-teaching it with Tristan Terramino, the author of many, many books and director and producer of many educational porn videos. She's, she's an incredible speaker, teacher, author, and activist. I'm co-teaching with her and with Jamila Dawson, who's a licensed therapist. She's an incredible resource for mental health, emotional health, and she's also a pleasure activist. She, she's working on a project called Everyday Erotic. She's, she, they're just incredible co-facilitators. So I'm really excited to be working with them. And I also think the workshop is just going to be one of those things that feels like, whoa, I haven't seen that before. And also it's so obvious that we need it, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> yes. So it's at Everybody Gym, which is a new gym that just opened up in Los Angeles that's geared towards the community, the queer community. So everybody gym, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. on Saturday, September 23rd. You can take a look at the social media for it. We have a Facebook page for it, Pleasure as Resistance. We also are taking reservations through Eventbrite. So you can search for it on Eventbrite. You can also just show up. Uh, we are, we're offering the workshop for free because we really believe that this kind of conversation should be accessible to everyone. We are going to pass a hat because we're, we're, we're renting the space, you know, and we're, we're donating our labor. So we're, we're going to pass a hat, but no one's going to be turned away. It's, it's a, it's a free event. So I really hope to see some people there and I'd love to know if there's any listeners in the audience. If you let me, you know, come up afterward and let me know that you, you listened on a dresser that would, that'll just make my fucking day. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, some other uh, some other things happening in the city. Um, I was on vacation, so Lauren Lauren was on the ground for this one. But let's hear a report back from what happened at that meeting. So, in porn industry news, the LA County Board of Supervisors recently held a meeting in order to determine just how expensive the fines would be for the producers of adult films will now have to pay a fine in order to support the funding of Measure B, which is an L.A. County measure determining that all porn filmed within L.A. County is required to have the use of condoms. 
you listeners may remember this as prop 60 which was the statewide version of this ballot measure that did not pass but measure b actually passed in los angeles in 2012 and they are just now having meetings to determine the permit fees which will then set the budget of enforcing measure b so this is kind of a small thing in the large sense of electoral politics and bureaucracy (laughs) unless you produce porn in which case this is how much money they're going to charge you to do your job yeah Um, and so this is going to affect a lot of people it's a you know it the fact that this measure b passed in la county like it means that people are either leaving the county to shoot or having to do you know people are having to scramble to figure out what to do and now we're now we're gonna start getting information handed down to us that's about like yeah here's here's what you have to pay uh and are they gonna be levying like back fines like i don't don't think so and part of it and part of the problem is the exact wording of measure b is deliberately vague it's that's also just as a piece of writing it's terribly written like it's it's a hard to get through it's Just, incoherent by the way there's lots of passive voice <laughs> well also it's like in the first point it says like this is to address the epidemic of sexually oh. transmitted diseases coming from the porn industry infecting oh all of los angeles Fucking prejudicial lying, lying. Like, like that's the thing is there is, that's not a thing. That's That's not not real. real. Yeah. Anyway, so AIDS Healthcare Foundation, who you may remember as the people who spent a shit ton of money on Measure B, are the same people who did this with Prop 60. The same people who funded Prop 60, funded Measure B, and paid people in gift cards to wear t-shirts to the meeting that said enforce measure b wow but then these a lot of these people had no idea what they were there for saw some of their favorite porn stars and went up and complimented them after supporting the very measure said porn stars had gotten up at 9 a.m on a tuesday to attend this meeting to be against yes yeah, that it's, is some real convoluted fuckery right there. Yeah, no, the videos are on Twitter, uh, the, like, complete with the videos of people getting paid in gift cards by someone so, with a clipboard. For, for those of you, yeah, for those of you who, who feel a little bit lost about what's what's going on here, I, I highly suggest checking out um, a past episode of On the Dresser back when we were Sex Please, and it's, it's on our SoundCloud feed, about Prop 60, and you'll get a sort of breakdown about why the porn industry performers are so against having condoms be a regulation in porn. There's a lot of reasons why, um, not the least of which is that the porn industry in California, and especially in Southern California that I know about, is self-regulating. Mm-hmm. People people are getting tested on the regular. There actually has only been one outbreak of HIV um, in in the community, you know, in like, years and everyone takes really good care of their bodies and their health um, when they're when they're shooting on commercial sets so 
to have regulations come from the outside, not only is it sort of insulting to the to the performers who are doing a lot of legwork to make sure that they're taking care of their health together, but also it reminds us that sex workers are considered vectors of disease, even though, you know, there's all of this evidence to suggest that we actually are better at having safe sex, that our communication and our practices are stronger and better than people who are not involved in commercial sex. So it's it's offensive to have someone come from the outside and tell you what to do with your body, tell you what to put in your body, tell you how to have your sex. Um, all of that is offensive in addition to the fact that it actually doesn't have anything to do with the reality of what's going on in the industry. Um, it doesn't actually connect to the reality of the industry. So I, I hope that that helps break it down a little bit why there's tension over this measure. Another part of the reason is that all of this money that we are supposed to then pay the fees for is then going to an organization that does not care about our health. That Basically slut shames you. Yeah. Yeah. Because I would actually be all for improving working conditions in porn and improving health conditions in sex work. There's actually some proven ways on how to do that. Like, yeah. I don't know, opening fucking health clinics for sex workers. Ah. Uh. It, it's such one. a basic, it feels like the first thing you would do. But. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of labor issues going on in sex work, but, yeah. but, con, but condoms on porn sets should not be the most important thing. I, that's kind of what it comes down to for me. Yeah. So that actually works as a nice transition to Ella Darling, who is even more intimately familiar with the bureaucratic bullshit of changing local policy and being involved in not only local politics, but the California Democratic Party as a porn star. And now, On the Dresser would like to welcome a very special guest to our show, Ella Darling. Ella is an award-winning porn performer, leader in virtual reality, porn, and webcamming, an adult industry activist. She's currently serving as the president of the Adult Performer Advocacy Committee, Welcome, Ella. We are so excited to hear what you have to say. Let's jump right in. Um, as a sex worker and an activist, what was, what was your first moment of sort of combining the two and doing activism for sex work? How did you get involved in that? You know, it was, I want to say five or six years ago, there was a, an OSHA meeting in downtown Los Angeles. And at the time I had been doing porn for, I think maybe just a year, um, either a year or a few months, depending on how long it's been. Cause I, I really don't remember, mm-hmm. but I heard about this meeting, um, at city hall, um, where the free speech coalition was calling on performer voices to come out and speak on behalf of our industry and our rights and what we wanted as the actual laborers and the workers. And so I went to City Hall and I when they asked for commentary I stood up and I spoke my piece and I you know kind of called them out on some things that seemed really unfair and uh, counterintuitive to the work that they're trying to do in protecting the workers and um, and still there, someone took a photo of me on that day on that first day and I have this very in- inquisitive quizzical unattractive look on my face <laughs> and it's still a photo that shows up in articles to this day but it um that was the first opportunity that I saw to combine 
the activism that had been really important to me for most of my grown-up life to bring into my my new work, my new career that I had just only really started not not too long before that. And um, and so yeah, it was at a, a Cal OSHA meeting in downtown LA. And since then, I have been talking to OSHA several times a year. Um, since that initial meeting, I think that my relationship with the OSHA, I don't remember if that was the division or the standards board, because I didn't know the difference at the time. But um, in any case, my relationship with OSHA has outlived every other relationship I've had with any romantic partner. So <laughs> I feel like I'm kind of going steady with them. And I, I have seen the way that the relationship between OSHA and the adult industry has evolved since then. From that first day when it really felt like they were just trying to shut us out and just adamantly refusing to listen to our voices to this past month when there was a meeting with the OSHA division um, up in Oakland. And, you know, the standards board of OSHA, they meet once a month. And we, uh, my organization, APAC, the Adult Performer Advocacy Committee, we have a representative. So we have a representative from our organization attend the standards board meetings along with the Free Speech Coalition. And we have been very consistent and very adamant about attending these meetings. And over the course of the past year or so, they really started to understand that we are we're in it for the long haul. We are the people who are the stakeholders in this industry and our voices need to be heard and deserve to be heard. You know, some people really went to bat for us to make sure that that my organization had some seats at the table because we are the actual laborers. We my organization re- represents the workforce. And OSHA granted us those seats. And it was a really big, I felt like it was maybe not a turning point, but definitely something that made me feel very emboldened and very uh, excited about how our industry is working with OSHA and how OSHA is starting to recognize us as a very legitimate voice in this discussion, as, as we should be. Because what we've said all along, what something I've always said is that you don't help a group of people whose voices are silenced by speaking for them. You help them by giving them a voice and amplifying that voice, giving them a platform. That is how you help a group of people who you think lack voice on the situation. And um, I've been really pleased with the way the Free Speech Coalition has recognized that and worked very hard to allow us to have a voice and not speak for us. Um, just consistently, even in small, in small ways where, you know, we, at that meeting, the head of the FSC, Eric, um, would talk about how, you know, how our perspectives are important. And then he would deflect and say, actually, you know, let me let them speak for themselves because that's why they're here. And that's what we want. We just want to be heard. We want our voices to be considered and we want to be able to speak for ourselves. We are by the very definition of our industry, adults, we have agency and we want to be able to have a, a say in the way that our, our organization is or our industry is uh, treated in terms of workplace safety. And I agree with you. It feels like a huge victory to have OSHA finally say sex work is work, even if they're just saying it implicitly by allowing allowing your group a seat. That is that feels huge. I completely agree with that sentiment. It is. It's very huge. And I'm very thankful for Cal OSHA for the ways that they've 
made space for us because they could easily decide to shut us out and decide to just listen to the petitioners and they and they haven't been doing that and I think that it's really big to recognize that on on their behalf and for other sex workers in Los Angeles thank you for pushing your way into those meetings for those of us who can't make all of them we appreciate well, thank that. you um, it's definitely a huge effort amongst a lot of people. It's a grassroots effort. And I am thankful for everybody in my industry who has set aside the time, um, frequently waking up at three o'clock in the morning to get into a van, to drive hours and hours just to have their voices be heard. I am just so thankful for the way that our industry has come together. That is so good to hear. Um, so speaking of politics, uh, you were the runner up for the Democratic Assembly District Delegate in January. Um, I was the second runner up. Second. I don't want to toot <laughs> my own horn too much. I mean, I still lost. So let's acknowledge that. Um, but yeah, it was actually very inspiring. The way that worked, it was um, it's by district in California. Mm-hmm. And so I was the second runner up uh, for my district. And that feels like a really big accomplishment, honestly, because someone from from our background, from our industry, I, I say our industry from the porn industry. And I don't want to make that so it can be okay. our yeah, we're good. I don't want to be presumptuous. I know everybody <laughs> has different walks. There's no one right walk through life or through sex work. But for someone from the the porn industry to achieve that is incredibly inspiring and I, I, I sound like a jerk talking about myself as being inspiring, but it's really heartening. I, I don't think you sound like a jerk. I think you sound like you're taking pride in a very remarkable accomplishment. I am proud of it. And so the way it works is there's like there's 14 seats per district. My district happened to be one that was basically swept by some um, some establishment Democrats that had a lot of money and a lot of power behind them. They were relatives of people who are already legislators in California. And so it was sort of a an uphill battle to begin with. But of all the people that ran, and there were many in my district, to be the second runner up after the people who had basically everything handed to them and everything sort of laid out for them mm-hmm. was really big because I was running on a slate of people who have done a lot of work for the Democratic Party and for politics in California in general. Also, the fact that this slate of people, so you run as a slate, which means you find other people who share your beliefs or share your ideology, and you run together because there are several seats available. And so, you know, if I get 10 people to come to vote for me, and I encourage them to vote for my whole slate, and everybody else on the slate does the same thing, then we rack up those votes exponentially. So, um, to run on a slate of people who didn't know who I were, who I was, they had no idea who I was. A friend of mine introduced me to them because we were all from a progressive sort of Bernie Krat um, <laughs> group. And to come to this group where I don't know any of them and say, hey, guys, look, I am a porn performer. Here are my perspectives. Here's the community I come from that I represent. If that doesn't work for you, that's fine. Tell me now. I don't want to do anything that might, you know, jeopardize your political future. If if you're from a, a constituency or, or if you represent a group of people who are going to be really not okay with the fact that you're doing politics with someone in porn, I respect it. Just let me know and I will, you know, bow out gracefully. And from the first meeting where I was like, look, guys, here's the thing. 
they were all so supportive. They recognized the fact that my industry is a very important facet of that district because it's the North Hollywood sort of valley-ish area. Oh, yeah. Um, and they were like, no, your voice is important. Your organization, your industry is important in this district. You serve a very important role here and your voice matters. And never at any point did any of the people that I was running with show any apprehension or reluctance to associate with me. They were nothing but supportive. And it was just so inspiring. Um, even at the end of the day, when we all lost, me and another person from from my slate were the runners up. And um, and just afterwards, you know, we sort of had a little, a little talk, a little huddle. And um, my friend Susie, who's also a performer and also she works with Susie the Q. She's also Susie Q. She's also been on our show. I love Susie Q. So and Susie Q. It was this sort of like mom moment where she was like, hey, guys, I just want to say thank you so much for accepting Ella and letting her run with you guys and for supporting her. And it, was like, <laughs> it was like mom, like thanking my friends, rooting my friends. But it, it was just it was really cool. At the end of the day, these people accepted me for who I was and for what I do. And they accepted my role and they appreciated my contributions. And that was really huge for me. Um, I worked really hard within this this group. We only had about a month or so from the, the deadline to apply until voting day. And voting day was uh, January 7th or 8th. So really, you have like a week because nobody's, you can talk to everybody you want to talk to in December, but January is next year. Yeah. So the actual work needs to be done the week of the event. And yeah, it was just really cool. I, I didn't want to tap adult industry resources um, until sort of the last minute because I didn't want it to become a, a spectacle. Mm-hmm. I didn't want it to be like, oh, a porn star is doing this thing because I, I didn't feel like that was really what is that what I was after. I'm not trying to be the porn star who's doing this thing. I'm a concerned citizen who is taking action and I wanted support from my community, but I, I didn't really reach out to any adult industry press until a few days before the vote because I didn't want it to grow into something that wasn't representative of what I was trying to do. That's a tough balance to walk. So do you have any plans to continue working with the Democratic Party specifically? I have plans to continue doing anything I can politically to support sex workers and to support my industry. And if that lies in the Democratic Party, then I will definitely continue. If that lies elsewhere, then I will pursue that as well. That was an amazingly politic answer. That was perfect. <laughs> like, that was actually the perfect answer to that. Thank you. So, so working with the Democratic Party, one of their most popular politicians right now is newly elected Senator Kamala Harris, who has a very contentious relationship with most sex workers, particularly because of her actions trying to shut down Backpage in the name of human trafficking. And I was wondering if you had any commentary on that. I think that Kamala Harris has a lot of good ideas and a lot of good intentions. And so I don't want to paint, I I don't believe in black and white for the most part. I think there are uh, many, many shades in between. I'm not going (laughs) to shout out that horrible, horrible BDSM nonsense, but you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Not doing that. I think that she's incredibly misguided and wrongheaded when it comes to her actions against Backpage. I, um, I have been vocal about this on Twitter and I've been blocked by several Democratic um, figureheads and, and people who represent people in the Democratic Party in my opposition to her and called just a troll because I happen to oppose this 
this thing that she's done against Backpage. The thing is, there are many different kinds of sex work. There's the legal sex work, which I do in porn. There's illegal sex work. There's a lot in between, and there are a lot. There's a lot of overlap, and there are sex workers who have. Uh, a reliance on the work they do, which is most of us, Mm -hmm. um, and they have to work within the boundaries that they can. By shutting down Backpage, it takes a level of safety away from the people who are doing the work that they do because they have to, to support themselves, because this is the work that's available to them and the work that makes sense for them. It takes away the safety of um, vetting their clients online on finding clientele online. It's the difference between being someone who is privileged enough, but safe enough to do the sex work they do behind several layers of um, anonymity and professional vetting and being someone who is a streetwalker sex worker. Mm. There's, I do not intend to imply that being a streetwalker sex worker or being uh, an online sex worker in any regard are This isn't a value judgment, Mm -hmm. but there's a level of safety offered to sex workers who can create ads online, accept um, clients on a on a case by case basis and vet them through their personal vetting methods that keeps a huge swath of the sex worker community safe. Mm -hmm. And by taking away Backpage, it takes away this opportunity for these people frequently women, men, people of color, trans people, multi-marginalized people, and giving them a safe way to access the work that they have to do, that they really don't have any other option um, that makes sense for them, and work that, by the way, Amnesty International completely supports, Mm -hmm. which happens to be illegal, but also happens to be one of the oldest forms of professional work in humanity. It takes away a huge layer of safety. And not in, even and just for the illegal work. I know for there's a number. There are doms. Yeah, there's, there's fetish workers. There's, there's, even there's fetish so many porn. people. Like that's that's I, how I got some of my first gigs. Was well, I'm old, so it was Craigslist. But that was same. That's where when it was. Craigs when Craigslist shut down their adult gigs, I lost so many opportunities. I've up until about two years ago, I never had an agent and I never needed an agent because I could find the work I needed to get through Craigslist. Mm-hmm. And once Craigslist was pressured to shut down their adult gig section, I mean, I got my first ever adult work through Craigslist. I got my first ever porn scene with, with kink.com through Craigslist. Craigslist was great. And then they shut down the adult gig section, which forced a bunch of people to, to back page, which was the only thing that was really left for them to advertise their services. Some of it was legal, but you're absolutely right. Much of it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And it's all in the name of preventing trafficking, which is a really palatable, nice way to oppose sex work. And when you get into the statistics of trafficking and when you <laughs> investigate the sources and the sources of those sources, so many educators, and I'm not talking you know, some person who decided to Google or Wikipedia something. I'm talking like real sex educators, professors, actual university professors whom I have spoke, uh, whose classes I've spoke at, spoken at. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of that data is completely confounded. Um, when it comes down to even calling the FBI to vet their trafficking resources and, and the, the data they have on trafficking, Mm -hmm. This isn't one person. This is a lot of people, a lot of educators 
who get to that point and it turns out the FBI doesn't even know where that data comes from. They just have it in their database and so they espouse it, even though there's no hard facts to, to actually back it up. And so people love to oppose sex work and porn and anything adult oriented because um, it supports trafficking. But when you get right down to that, when we really examine that, trafficking is way more than sex work. Trafficking is, you know, um, au pairs who are hired in households from other countries and then sort of held hostage and treated as um, as mm. just they just don't have rights, really. They're not I mean, their passports are withheld from them until they complete this work. They're indentured servants, essentially. Um, trafficking can be in any field. But when it's sex work. Because it allows people to devalue legal, well, not legal, but consensual sex work and legal sex work at the same time. I mean, people claim that porn is a bunch of trafficked victims. And that's so hilarious to me because if you knew how many willing porn performers <laughs> are waiting to get gigs who end up having to do like non-adult work just to support they work the work they do in porn, it's like we don't need to traffic people. There are plenty of people lined up waiting to do this work. But, um, but yeah, it's just it's absurd. And it's shrouded in this fear of sex, this fear of people who um, who embrace sex and embrace sexuality, and especially women, like women who decide to reclaim and take back their control over their own sexuality. And this is something that is so vilified by so many facets of our culture. And because it happens to involve sex, it's suddenly treated as something that um, you must be a victim if you're engaging in it. This is something I, I even find um, when I go to these OSHA meetings. They talk about the AIDS Healthcare Foundation. We'll talk about how, you know, we surveyed a bunch of sex workers or a bunch of porn performers and something like, I think they said 10% said that they did something on a set or on a shoot that they didn't want to do. That statement sounds so alarming. Like, oh my gosh, these porn performers are doing work that they don't want to do. Yeah, but, but what when was you treat that work, it, too. that's the thing. It's work. At the end of the day, it's work. How many people can say in their jobs, out, uh, let's just completely disregard sex work. How many people can say in the course of the work that you do in your job, in your career, have you ever done something you didn't want to do? Because I think it's pretty much across the board. Everybody at some point in their job does something they don't want to do. I mean, that's the definition of a job. You don't want to do your job. Otherwise, it would just be a hobby. Like, that's why you get paid for it. That's why you pay for it. But once you introduce sex into the equation, suddenly it's victimization. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's infantilizing, frankly. Like, yeah, sometimes I do work at my job that I don't want to do. That doesn't mean I'm a victim. That means I'm someone who's employed to do a job. Like... It's it's absurd. Like, even when I work with my friends, sometimes it's like, well, I really don't want to be tickled right now. It's like, I hate being tickled, but because Me that's what I'm hired too. to do today. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And like, is that something like, am I suddenly a victim of the scary trafficking? In no, the it's just traffickers. <laughs> yeah, it's a job. And I'm doing the work that I was hired to do because it's my job. And at any point, I could easily say like, hey, I don't want to do this. I'm going to leave now, just like anybody else in any other job can. But because you introduce sex into it, suddenly we're not just employees or workers or contractors who are doing a job that they're paid to do. Suddenly we're victims. And it's this introduction of victimization. It's completely infantilizing because it implies that simply because sex is a part of my work, I suddenly no longer have agency or no longer have a say over what I choose to do as an adult woman who has chosen this career for herself. 
I was at my 10-year high school reunion. I was talking to one of the guys I went to high school with, and I was talking to him about his job. I was like, hey, cool, what do you do? And he worked for a trucking company. He's like, oh, cool, do you like it? How is that? And he's like, no, I hate it. I work really long hours. It's backbreaking work. At the end of the day, my back hurts, my feet hurt. Like, I've got this weird infection in my feet because I'm on my feet all day. Mm. Like, it's really rough. Like, I I mean, I do it because it pays a lot of money, but I, yeah, I, I hate it. I was like, wow. If I talked about my job the way that he just talked about his job, there are entire organizations that exist to rescue me from it. Mm-hmm. But because my job involves sex, suddenly it's not something I'm doing just because it's all in a day's work. Suddenly I am a victim of some faceless monster. And that's absurd. That was Ella Darling. Stay tuned for information on how you can hear the rest of that interview, including libraries, cosplay, and way more about virtual reality porn. It's, it's, it's the future! It is. <laughs> so, dude, Vanessa, I hear we have a request from a listener. Yes, I'm so excited about this note that we got. Got an email. Dear Dr. Carlisle, aw. I've been, I, I've been enjoying on the dresser. It's great to hear your voice and the topics are so interesting. This person was reading about the Nordic model, read, read an article about the, the Nordic model of regulating prostitution and had some questions about that model and then said, I'd love to hear an episode about the pros and cons of different legal strategies in addressing sex work. Um, so I think that's a really great question. Hope you're well. And does it still give you a thrill to be addressed as Dr. Carlisle? Yes, Suzanne, it does. (laughs) Good. Because it's still fun to say. I will take it. Um, so yeah, so Suzanne's request, an episode about the pros and cons of different legal strategies is we're going to take that request. We're, we're going to make a podcast for you in the next couple of weeks about it. Um, I'm going to be interviewing someone who's a legal expert in trafficking regulation, um, and we're going to be talking about what the models are that are happening legally in the U.S., what's functioning here and what's functioning elsewhere, what the differences are between legalization, decriminalization, and criminalization. But Dr. Carlisle, if she asked about the legalities of sex work, why are we interviewing a trafficking expert? (laughs) Right. Well, that's because the United States is a country that has full criminalization of almost all aspects of full-service sex work. And in fact, you are considered a trafficking victim unless you are considered a trafficker. So you really don't have a legal space in which to be a sex worker. Um, that's, that's one of the questions that we're going to address is how the law treats all people involved in the sex industry as either um, what, what people used to think of as pimps, um, who are now being called traffickers, or victims of third parties, you know, people who, people who are getting trafficked. So that's going to be part of the conversation that we're having. Thank you so much for writing us. We get very, very excited. And we would love to hear your ideas. Please get in touch with us or story ideas, signal boosts, comments, feedback, send your thoughts, whatever they are, or record us a note on your phone and you can send it to on the dresser at gmail.com. You can catch up on all the past episodes that we referenced, including the ones from Sex Please, on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher Radio. 
And while you're there, we would love if you would subscribe and share our podcast. Uh, you can also catch up with us for comments or just keep see what kind of news we're keeping up with on social media. You can find us on Twitter at on the dresser. Or if you're so inclined, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at XOXO Lauren Kylie. Dr. Vanessa Carlisle, where can listeners find your social media? <laughs> you can follow me on Twitter at V Carlisle. That's V for Vanessa. My last name is C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. I'm also on Instagram as Vanessa Carlisle. My Instagram is a little more personal. If you're interested in the larger uh, political discussions and retweets and stuff, I do a lot of that on Twitter. Um, so our production team is myself, uh, Dr. Vanessa Carlisle, Lauren Kylie, and Danny Cruz. All of our music here on On The Dresser is produced by Lou Gomez. Thank you, Lou. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for listening. Yes, thank you. All power to the people. All pleasure to the people. Good, good night, night and, and good, good fuck. fuck.